evening, everyone, and welcome to Harvard Divinity School. It's our great pleasure to welcome you and to welcome these very fine musicians for a special evening, a lecture and performance. And we feel very honored to be hosting this event. I'm Diane Moore. I'm a professor here at the Divinity School and the director of the Religious Literacy Project, which is one of the co-sponsors of this event. We also are incredibly grateful for the many other sponsors that I want to just name who are behind the scenes to help make this event possible. The Young Chul Min Memorial Fund at the Korea Institute here at Harvard University is our uh, major co-sponsor. Music unites us at Brandeis University, which I'll say a, a bit about in a moment. The Korean Cultural Society of Boston, who's been remarkable in helping to organize not only this event, but the week prior, which I'll speak about again in a moment, and Center Stage Korea. So I want to thank all of our co-sponsors for this event. We're fortunate enough to have this opportunity because of the remarkable work that Judy Eisenberg is doing as a professor of the practice and member of the Lydian String Quartet at Brandeis University. Judy is the director, founding director, of a program there called Music Unites Us, that twice a year brings world-renowned musicians to the Brandeis campus for a full week of uh, residency where they speak at classes and do workshops and then have uh, opportunities to do a concert there. And this is our second opportunity to partner with Music Unites Us to bring the musicians that are here in Boston to bring them also for an opportunity for our community here at Harvard to perform. So it's thanks to the partnership with Music Unites Us that we have this wonderful opportunity and we're honored to have it. And I'm going to turn, turn this over now to Judy who will introduce Hillary, our musicologist and curator for the event last week and for this evening. So thank you. Thanks. I'm going to move this because the sun is there. Um, I'm going to add a few names to the list of sponsors. Uh, she, uh, Diane mentioned the Korean Arts Management Service, the, the Korean Consulate General of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Culture, Sports, and Tourism of the Republic of Korea, the Overseas Korean Foundation, uh, and of course the Korean Cultural Association of Boston. Um, special thanks to Byung and uh, Yoo Kyung Kim who have really had an amazing vision and uh, energy about this. Um, so I'd like to um, introduce Dr. Hilary Fincham Sung uh, I'll tell you a little bit about her. She's Associate Professor of Theory and Ethnomusicology in the Department of Korean Music at Seoul National University, where she teaches classes on ethnomusicology, world music, and Korean music. She served as the chair of the interdisciplinary major in music education at Seoul National University and formerly worked as a lecturer and researcher at the University of San Francisco and UC Berkeley. She's published, she's she lectures. What I, I love most about this, though, as a musician myself, is that she emphasizes bimusicality. She's a Hagum player. She has lived in Korean, Korea for the last 20 years and uh, is really immersed in studying about and playing uh, the music. So she really knows it from the inside. She's been our curator and speaker, guiding us through this incredibly beautiful, striking music all week. So I'll hand it over to Dr. Fincham Sung. So I'm going to start 
uh, with a brief introduction in Korean. 안녕하십니까? 한국 분들 계시니까 짧게 재수없게 드리겠습니다. 저는 서울대학교 국악과 교수이고요. 거기서 국악 이론 그리고 민족음악학 관련 수업 하고 있습니다. 그래서 우리가 초대 특히 하버드 브랜다이스 대학교 이렇게 이번 주 레지던시 할수 있어서 매우 영광합니다. 음, 어, 네, 여기 지금까지 뭐 여기까지 어, 한국말로만 얘기할 거고요. 언어 사회 그리고 커멘트 짧은 강의 다 영어로 할 겁니다. 어, 단 와주셔서 감사합니다. 오늘 즐겁게 보십시오. Um, so my name is Hilary Fincham Song. Thank you very much for that introduction. We are really honored to be here. Um, this has been a wonderful week. Um, as a part of the Music Unites Us residency, we've done a series of lectures in many different classes. We've had lectures and thing in classes all the way to, from American protest to <laughs> the anthropology of religion. So we've really stretched our boundaries and I stretched my academic limits, <laughs> I believe this week, but it's been such a beautiful experience. We've jammed with, with musicians and students from the New England Conservatory and we've introduced 400 middle schoolers at John F. Kennedy Middle School in Waltham, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, to Korean music and even answered questions about trade <laughs> and the free trade agreement and cultures and also uh, uh, what are the literati, what are aristocrats. So it's been a wonderful week um, and a very layered week. Um, and one of the main themes of this particular uh, residency, and this is something that Judy Eisenberg really struggled with. What can I call this? And so she came up with this gorgeous title, Soundscapes of the Soul. And I think it's absolutely perfect because as an ethnomusicologist, you know, I study the relationship that that people have with music. You know, we often use music when we do our research uh, as a way to understand better about culture and about people's lives. But we also study people's lives to better understand how they interpret musical sounds and how they think about music and hear music and perceive of it. So um, this is what I do. And one of the issues currently that, that uh, we're very concerned with uh, in ethnomusicology is soundscapes. You know, how do we create music that reflects our environment and also helps project the identity that we wish to project to the world? Um, it's interesting because at the, the middle school in Waltham, we got the question, so these musical instruments are related to Korean culture. <laughs> so I thought, at first I was like, well, of course, you know, and then I thought about it and it was actually a very, very good question. We have to think about, you know, why the instruments are constructed the way they are. Why does the voice project a sound that I would describe is very distinctly and uniquely Korean, and it's very much tied to um, ideas about aesthetics and beauty, but also the message that the music is meant to project, and also the story that the music is meant to tell. Uh, so it's been our job this week to tell a multi-layered story and to talk about the many different layers and the many different contexts in which Korean music has developed over time and through space, but also how it exists today in the world. Um, I have a brief announcement to make about the program. Now we're going to start the program with Sang Yong San, and I'll talk about that piece here in a minute, which is a solo piece for the PD. But the very last piece in the program, Taepyeong Sol Shinawi. Uh, has anybody ever he heard the Taepyeong Sol? 
okay, well, you know, all right, oh. And you're probably looking at the problem and going, ooh, this is gonna be interesting in this space. Well, we had the same thought. Um, the Taepyeongso is a conical double reed oboe, and it's quite loud. It's typically designed or used, it's designed for, but also used in outdoor performances, marching band music traditionally in Korea. It's a little bit loud for this space. Um, we tried it out don't think it's going to work. So uh, for that reason, and also because uh, the last piece is more of a presentation of a staged version of music that is based in shaman ritual tradition, instead of doing this, we thought we would do a performance of an actual segment of a ritual a little bit longer uh, for you all. So the fourth, so we're going to not do the last number on the program, or the piece on the program, but we're going to be doing an extended version of Shikim Gut. And uh, we, and the reason why I'm wearing a hanbok, you're probably wondering why am I wearing a hanbok, um, is because I'm actually part of it. So our dear um, former student, graduate of our program at Seoul National University, she's a student at NAC and she's going to be joining us uh, for that segment. Um, so I would like to begin with talking a little bit about the first piece. Um, throughout this performance today, we're gonna to be telling a story. We're gonna be telling a story of musical syncretism um, and many different theologies and ideologies that have crisscrossed and developed over time in Korea. And um, oftentimes, when sometimes people talk about Korea, particularly the Chosun era, which is 1392 to 1910, people also often emphasize um, the Neo-Confucian or the very strict Confucian approach to society and life um, that was projected during that particular period of time. But it was still very much a syncretic period of time. And the dominance of Neo-Confucianism at that time influenced music development, but also heavily influenced development in other areas like Buddhism and also also shamanism, and that has strongly influenced the way that shamanism and uh, Buddhism have played out today and the positions that they have in Korean contemporary society. Um, so the first piece is a piece called Sangyong Song. And actually today, just to give you a words up, it's not gonna be a strict lecture and then just music. I think it's more beneficial if I talk a little bit about what we're going to do and what that means and, and draw it, draw a line uh, uh, of the musical sound or from the musical sound to theological or ideological ideas and that way um, we can connect to the overall theme of today's event. So Sangyeongsan is a piece from the Sonbi or literati tradition. And one of the things that I alluded to just a moment ago is that the Chosen dynasty, which was again 1392 to 1910, um, was really marked heavily by a Neo-Confucian aesthetic and ideology. So prior to the 14th century, Buddhism was very dominant in Korea. And so one of the things that you do when you, this was the Koryo era, or Koryo dynasty, and when you have a change of power, one of the things that you tend to do or that you want to do is discredit the former powers that be. And so um, one of the issues with Koryo, especially towards the end, was that the Buddhist monasteries had amassed a great amount of wealth and they had a great amount of dominance um, in, in, in sway in Korean society. So at the dawn of the Yi dynasty then, or Chosun dynasty in 1392, people were very interested in kind of cutting off a connection with that history and building a new history. And this history was very much influenced again by Confucian ideology. Now Confucianism had been introduced into Korea sometime in the seventh and eighth century, so it had been around for a while. Um, there had been a heavy influence from China over the years um, because Korea had a very strong emissarial relationship with China. Um, 
so there were a lot of things that happened when the dynasty or the Chosen dynasty began in 1392. Um, and the, one of the biggest was establishing this ideology with the king as a top down, the king being the top or the royal family uh, and the powers that be offering an example to the rest of society. And so this meant living in a way um, that reflected the morals and the ideology of, of Confucianism. Um, so this piece is actually a classic example of syncretism because the aesthetics musically can said to be really connected to Neo-Confucianism. You know, and um, one of the things that's very strong in Confucianism, especially a very strict form of it, is you know your place in society. You know where you stand compared to somebody else. You know how to use a particular type of language when communicating with another person, depending on their social status and your social status. Um, so the idea is that you know where you stand and the idea of being very expressive or expressing sadness or anger or a grievance very emotionally or outwardly is not something that is necessarily desired or considered to be very good for you either as an individual in society. So music as a whole was said to be, the music that was condoned by the government at that time was, said, was supposed to be an example for the rest of society. And um, there, are, there was ritual music at court called Aak. And so the ritual music was very slow, very stately, um, very impressive, very majestic. And so it kind of set the mood for court ritual and state functions. Um, another type of music that wasn't necessarily ritualistic, but was very much tied to Confucian ideals, was called Pungyu. Now this is where I get to syncretism, because um, Pungyu didn't start in the Chosen era the 14th century to 20th century. It actually started way before that particular time. Way before the Cordio dynasty, there was a period of time called the Three Kingdoms period, and there were three kingdoms. Among them, or actually there were four, but one is never talked about very much, but one of the dominant kingdoms was Shilla. And there were um, aristocrats in Shilla, like there were aristocrats everywhere else. And in Shilla, there were a group of young men who were sons of aristocrats, and they were referred to as the Huarang. So the Huarang were flower boys, uh, and they were given this name because they wore these flowers in their hair. But they were also pretty boys of the time. They were the metrosexuals, you know, <laughs> of early Korean history. They were the predecessors of the K-pop, Kominam, uh, <laughs> that you, you have <laughs> um, in Korea today. So this is the Huarang, and so the Huarang practiced a way of life known as Pungyu. And Pungyu means wind and stream. And um, it really draws heavily on this, this idea that we must use our bodies, our minds, our spirits to connect to nature. So the Huarang engaged in a variety of activities from sports, horseback riding, archery, to poetry, calligraphy, and music making. And this was a part of life, this was a way of life known as Pungyu. And music was just a part of this. And so there's an aesthetic that emerged at that time, and that aesthetic was Naki Pulyu E Pulbi, this idea. It's not Confucian, it's not Buddhist necessarily, it's really Taoist in nature. But this Taoist idea was very appealing. So the Huarang existed and they flourished during the Shilla and then time went on and some people believe the Huarang kind of died out in popularity. And then you had the opening of the Chosen dynasty in 1392. And um, there were still the landed aristocrats at that time and they were very interested in following the Confucian example. But they found Pungyu very appealing because the Pungyu ideals also espoused things like respecting the king, even ideas about revenge. <laughs> there was 
a whole Huarang aesthetic and moral code and commandments that, that, that um, this group of young men uh, went by. And these ideals were very appealing to uh, the literati, the Sonbi, who um, were you know, pretty much in control of society. These were the people that were born into a status. They were the landed aristocrats. And they were the ones who were, who were able to take the civil service exam so that they, can, they could then hold state positions or government positions. Um, but in their, part, in their spare time, they engaged in music making and poetry writing and calligraphy. And they practiced a lifestyle that they were calling pungyu. So this pungyu aesthetic thrived and developed very strongly still during the Chosen era. And so music was a very strong part of this. And so this is where we have this genre of music that I'm about to introduce, which is known as hunyu. So this is a secular music associated with court life at that particular time. Um, one of the classic pieces in the Pungyu repertoire is a piece called Yongsan Huesang, um, and it's a suite that when played in its entirely la entirety lasts for over an hour. So we don't have that kind of time today, but we have a time to show you a snippet of this so that you can get a sense of the way the music feels. Sang Yongsan is the very, very first piece um, of Yongsan Huesang, and, and the title actually comes, Yongsan Huesang, the title comes from a, a lecture that Buddha was supposed supposedly gave on a holy mountain. And, and the lyrics originally, there used to be a song that went with this, and the lyrics originally were sang yong san bul bo sai, you know? And so there, we don't really know how the lyrics were sung or presented, we just know that there were lyrics. But some, sometime in the 15th century, the lyrics eventually died out and it became an instrumental suite. So the very first piece um, of yong san hui sang is sang yong sang. It's very slow, it has a 20 beat rhythmic pattern, and it's really just about breath. It's about roundness. And it's about connecting to an inner spirit. This music is the ultimate meditation music. Um, uh, Sang Yong San was the first, and then other pieces developed after this that were originally derived from Sang Yong San. Following Sang Yong San, there was Chung Yong San, and then there was Sei Yong San, and then there were other, other pieces that were added so that the suite grew over time. And by the time the, the 17th century rolled around, we had a really long piece of music that was based on this original piece, Sang Yong San. Also, during the Chosen era, a lot of solo pieces developed from this long suite, which was really an ensemble suite. Um, and so this is a great example. This is a, a, a pidi. Pidi is a double reed um, instrument. It's a tiny instrument with a lot of punch. It has a very, very strong sonority. And so you might be surprised when he comes out and he plays. Um, but this particular solo was developed specifically for the pidi to bring out the mellow characteristics of the instrument and to also really highlight the aesthetics of this particular style of music. So our first performer today is a wonderful pidi performer. Um, yeah, okay, I just want to make sure. We had a little bit of change in order and, and I got my wires crossed. Um, so um, our first performer is Sokju Lee. He is a wonderful performer. Um, he is um, from a large family of musicians. He's been playing music since before he can remember. He's a specialist in Korean folk music, but also a gifted performer in all the genres that the PD can play in, which is pretty much all the genres of Korean music. So please welcome, uh, once he gets um, his clothing arranged, let's welcome Sokju Lee to the performance space.
Okay, so here you have a classic example of religious syncretism. You have a, a piece of music that was designed to, ref, to be used to reflect Buddhist um, ideology. This is Sang Yongsan, or it's pulled from Yongsan Huisang, um, but uh, was reworked or revised or recontextualized um, in the, during the Chosun era. Uh, based on the appeal that the Pungyu aesthetic had for the Confucian literati. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a, a classic example of how um, ideology, ideals of religious thought, uh, all of these things have played a very strong part in, uh, in Korea's development over time. Uh, the next performance that we have is, is Pansori. Okay, so um, we, we have a performance of Pansori. Pansori is epic storytelling. Um, so there are many different uh, stories that are told through the format of Pansori, which is classically a kosu, uh, which, is an, a which is somebody who partners with a singer to tell a story. But another important part in this story is the... Uh, uh, is the audience. So oftentimes audience members will shout out exclamations. I'm not going to encourage you all to do that today. I'm not sure if this is the right spot to do this, but don't be surprised when the drummer shouts out things like, you know, chota, or he encourages the performer. You can do this too if you feel like it. Um, so just to let you know that you're welcome to do this. Now this is um, an interesting tale of music development in Korea, just briefly, that we have five extant tales of pansori existing in Korea today that are based in the traditional pansori, or the pansori tradition. And the reason why we only have five surviving tales is because there was a cleanup at the end of the or the, during the 19th century, um, where uh, the songs were originally developed in a shaman context. Actually, there was a class of people called the Kwang Day, and they would come out and do performances during shaman rituals to help alleviate boredom and to help entertain people gathered. They also performed in marketplaces, and so pansori or stor epic storytelling was part of their repertoire. Um, but the thing about it was these stories appealed to the commoners and to the masses, and they were pretty raunchy. Um, there, was, uh, there was a lot in there that the Confucian elite didn't approve of, but the Confucian elite actually thought Pansori was pretty cool. Uh, sometime in the 18th, 19th century, they brought it to court, and they brought it to their homes uh, for performances, but um, there was a, a member of the literati class who decided the story should be cleaned up, um, and it went through this huge, you know how in, in Victorian England, too, a lot of fairy tales were cleaned up uh, to, to be more palatable for, for then Victorian society. The same thing happened in Korea with Pansori. And so these stories were paired up very closely with Confucian ideals. The story that you're, Chunyanga Saranga Hashinengojo. Yeah, um, so um, I want you to hear him sing. So they're going to be doing a scene from a tale called Chunhyang Jun, but it's known as Chunhyanga or the t or the song of Chunhyang. It's a story about two lovers. One is Chunhyang, who's very um, just very pure, a young woman, and she and a son of an aristocrat fall in love. It's sort of a star-crossed lover tale because she comes from a lineage of Gisang, or courtesans, and he is a son of an aristocrat, and they're never really supposed to marry because they're not from the same social class, but they do secretly. Um, and so um, she uh, maintains loyalty to Mongnyeon, her lover, and her then husband, uh, despite all kinds of hardships. So this is supposed to be a story of filiality to your husband or loyalty to your husband. So this particular scene or song, Saranga, is a love song, and it's about the two when they have their first night together. Um, so uh, I'll, let's... 
give the performers a round of applause and welcome them. So he's saying, he wanted to just say briefly, we've been here for a little over a week and uh, it's been a very happy time, trying at times, but just a wonderful experience for all of us. He's particularly grateful to Judy Eisenberg for her support and for inviting us here. And he's very grateful to his new aunt and uncle, <laughs> Kim Yuk Young and Kim Young, who <laughs> they've become part of the family. You're very, you should be very honored. Um, and we're very happy to become closer. And um, yeah, so thank you very much for your support. So thank you.
Right, so it's a good thing we have adults here gathered because this is the epic moment during which they actually consummate their marriage. <laughs> There's a lot of visual imagery here, you know, the... the... Right? <laughs> so the, the imagery that is, you know, pillars are flying, the candle goes out, and he says in, in American style, you could say that they collapse the bed. Um, so this is basically, you know, it's all going crazy in their bedroom. So this is the first night together in the physical act. <laughs> right, yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's rated R from this point on, yeah. I know that for some of you, you might not have understood what was being said, but I, I, I imagine that you could perhaps connect to what he was doing. I especially like the part where he's like, just take your clothes off, you know? So it's quite vivid imagery in that particular part of the song, and he does a really great job of projecting um, that imagery through his voice and through his movements and through his sense of humor. Um, we have the next piece that's coming up is a beautiful projection of Buddhist ideology. So um, there's a story, and not, not everybody is really sure of this dance, dance's origins, but this dance is referred to as Sungmu, or the monk's dance. Now this was never a dance that was officially done by Buddhist monks, but it became associated with Buddhism sometime mid-Chosen dynasty. And there was a period of time during which the aristocratic elite were not too big of fans of Buddhism or any other competing ideology, so it was put underground. You could, you could not outwardly practice, um, sorry, shamanism or Buddhism. 
And so for that reason, there was a great amount of proselytizing in particular towards the masses. And some people believe that this dance was used to teach about Buddhism to commoners, uh, most of whom were illiterate. And so this dance was a kind of a sexy way, an attractive way to appeal to ideals of connecting to a greater power. So this particular, it's not a, it's not a sexy dance, so strike that word from, your, from what I just said, but it was just, I mean that to mean appealing. So in this case, this dance um, is is about connecting to the divine. It's about connecting to a greater power. And in that sense, the act of doing the dance and connecting to the drum represents uh, son, or it's a form of meditation. So through the activities of the dancer and her connection to this drum, um, she is being drawn to the divine and she finally connects to that power when she touches the drum. And so the accompanying ensemble is uh, a wind ensemble, or dance ensemble music uh, accompaniment ensemble. Um, but once she starts striking the drum and builds up tension, it's pretty much her on her own connecting to that greater power. So I'll get started because she's going to hate that I keep talking and she's in that position. So please welcome them.
Thank you.
she's just a beautiful dancer, and I have a secret to tell you. It's not really a secret. Um, she is a master Kayagam performer. So she is a famous Kayagam player in Korea, uh, and she's been playing Kayagam since she was five years old. Um, but she's also a dancer, and uh, she has been learning, of course, you could see this. She's been learning both since she was five years old. Historically in Korea, musicians were multi-instrumentalists and also uh, performers of dance and song. Um, these days it's become a more and more specialized world, but she rarely represents old school, uh, what I call old school Korean traditional music performance um, and dance. And she's just a beautiful person. Her name is Ji Young Yi. And she is a colleague of mine. We're both in the Department of Korean Music at Seoul National University. She is the Kayagam professor. I didn't get a chance to introduce the musicians on stage. Um, we have um, uh, several wonderful musicians. And I want to start with uh, our Ajeng player who was just playing the um, drummer. And this is Taebek Lee. Taebek Lee is a professor of Korean music at, at uh, um, uh, in a in university in Mogwan, yeah, sorry. Um, Mogwan University in Taejeon. He's also a, he's in line for four intangible cultural properties as a holder or a human cultural treasure uh, for Chindo uh, Shikimgut, um, which you're about to see, and also for Pansori, for Pansori accompaniment, and also for Ajeng Sanjo. So that is Taebek Lee. Let's. We also have on Tegum, he's a performer at the National Kugak Center. He's a wonderful Tegum player. His father is a master Tegum player who is actually a human cultural treasure. Uh, and uh, and I'll, I'll introduce his name. This is Wan Chol Won. So please. This is where we get all in the family because on Changu right now, who's also our Pansori singer, is, and he talked to you all earlier, his name is uh, Hyunbin Lim. Uh, he is Taebek Lee's nephew. Um, they are all connected and they've all, they're, it's a musical family, so it's all in the blood <laughs> with this family. So please give him a round of applause. And his other uncle on stage is our purity performer, Sokju Lee. So you heard him perform Sang Yong Sang earlier. Please give him a round of applause. For our final performance today, we have a performance of Chindo Shikim Gut. Now, Shikim is a kind of ritual, in, and it's connected to shamanism. And it's really a rite of passage. You know, when we die, our family members gather and they mourn us, and they also present a ritual. They present uh, a funeral, you know, what we typically uh, have. In contemporary Korean society, too, there's something called a Changne Shikjang, which is where people will go and they'll stay for about three days and they'll hang out and they'll eat food and then they'll go to the place where the person is to be buried or cremated. Um, historically in Korea, everybody had what was called a Shikim, so that meant a cleansing of the body, where the body would be prepared for death and for passage into the next life, but also the soul would be cleansed. And so the Shikim Gud is a right um, to allow us to cleanse the soul, but also 
to say goodbye. Now we can't perform the entire Shikim Guk because that would take several, several hours or even days. So um, they have decided to present a few segments. The very first segment that you're going to hear is an instrumental section called Samhyan. And so this is the beginning section of a, of a Shikim Gut. Now this is based on Chindo Shikim Gut. So uh, this Chindo is an island off the southwestern coast of Korea and the music itself represents the very special characteristics of that uh, that area, which is the Namdo Kemyanjo uh, or Yukjabegi um, style of performance, which goes like, you know, ah, ah, ah. So you'll, you'll hear music not exactly like that, but it'll be based around that. Um, so we're going to start with music, Namdo Samhyan. Um, and then he'll progress to a song welcoming you all to the space because the dead benefits, the deceased benefit from this rite of passage, but so do we. And then we're going to move on to a section called Kiel Dakum. So Kiel Dakum is, a, is where we actually prepare a road or a path for the soul to move on to the next life. So this is called Chosang Kiel, Chosang Kiel in, in Korean, which is kind of this, it's actually this path to the other life or the other world. And so our um, Kaigum player and also our, our beautiful dancer Ji Young Yi is going to come out and re represent um, the figure uh, who is taking the spirit to the next world. Um, her student, her Cheja, <laughs> Doyen Kim, is going to be holding uh, the path with me. So, we're, so one thing that I would like you to do, and this is traditionally in Korea, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, um, but as the soul of the dead is represented by a cloth going back and forth on this path, many people from the audience will come out and put money <laughs> on the path. I'm not, we're not busking here. Uh, but, if you, but if you feel the spirit, and especially if you've done this before, don't be shy about doing it now. Um, you don't have to. But just know that this is a, an, a thing, an, an action, an event that benefits us all. And most people will go out and put, you know, a dollar or something like that on the paths as a way to kind of get a blessing uh, for themselves. So that's what that action is all about. Um, at the song that he's going to be uh, singing during that particular section is actually a series of songs that is based on the Sangyo Sori, or Funeral Dirge Repertoire. And so this repertoire is um, the words, I can't tell you what they all mean right now, but they basically begin with, gosh, I'm really sad that you're, you're gone. I'm going to miss you. I can't believe you're dead. Um, and, and the lyrics progress to, you must move on. You know, it's, it's about taking the spirit to the other world and doing it musically. The music actually paves the way, the actions pave the way, and the lyrics themselves allow us to say goodbye and also comfort the spirit of the dead as they transition into the next life. So please give them a round of applause as we prepare to do Shikim Kut.
Let's thank our performers one more time because they've really poured their heart and soul into this week and gone out of their comfort zones and put on more performances in a week than they probably do in a year <laughs> this week. So please give them a hearty round of applause.